0: As the children are dismissed to go to their children's church, let us turn to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14, we'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. And he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oath and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus, this is the word of the Lord. There's some uncertainty about that, thanks be to God. (laughs) Happy New Year, here's a beheading. For better or worse, one of the. Pop culture phenomenons of the past 10 years has been something called Minions. If you haven't heard of them, blessings be upon you. Uh, If you have kids, you've probably seen one of the movies that have the Minions. Or if you've been on Facebook, you've probably seen the memes of these things that look like uh, stumpy bananas with an eyeball and overalls. Um, Okay, now you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Minions got so popular that they even got their own movie, which my kids insisted on watching yesterday. Uh, Again, for the 50th time. Uh, And in the Minions movie, at the very beginning, the narrator explains the origin of Minions. You see, Minions, as long as they've existed, have one purpose. They want to find and follow the biggest, baddest, meanest boss around. They want to find the most villainous character they can find and then serve that character. They live, the Minions do, they live in perpetual wonder and awe of this mighty, great world around them and the power that surrounds them. And having no desire to to be that power themselves, they just want to find the biggest power and follow after it. They're portrayed as silly little creatures, comic relief in a world of big and mighty characters. And Christians, I would ask, how often do we feel and act the same way? We read history. We read the news. We look around and we see power. We see power in the government. We see power in finance. We see power in pop culture. We even see power in Christian culture. And we feel small and insignificant in the face of great power, like little minions who can only be in awe. But the powers of this world do not run the world. This is, as we sang already this morning, this is our Father's world. He is, as we sang, our refuge. Not any leader or institution or kingdom on earth is our refuge. And as history shows, kingdoms always come into conflict. When you have two mighty empires growing, eventually, what we learn in history is eventually their borders are going to bump into each other and they will come into conflict. So what happens when earthly powers, when earthly kingdoms and authorities come up against the kingdom of God? When their borders bump up against one another? I'm not preaching this passage this morning as some political commentary or as any intentional diatribe on current events. I didn't choose this for any specific purpose. If you've been with us the past year, you know we're just tracking through Matthew's gospel. And last month we went through Matthew 13. And do you know what follows Matthew 13? Matthew 14. Okay? So if you see any connection between what God's Word teaches us here and what we are living and going through in 2021, I'm not going to say it's coincidence. I'm going to say that the Bible has much to say to us in every age. And what God's people suffer today is no different from what God's people suffered 2,000 years ago and for his, which His Word has always prepared us. The conflict here between Herod's kingdom and John's ministry. In that, we see how worldly powers, earthly kingdoms, how they respond to the kingdom of God, beginning with Herod's reaction. Herod's first reaction in this story is fear. Other powers fear the kingdom of God. Most of this story is actually a flashback. Matthew's telling us a story out of sequence, out of chronological order. What sets up the story... The reason Matthew feels like he needs to share this story now is that Jesus' fame is spreading. Last week we saw that as he came to his hometown, his own people rejected him. Despite his miracles, despite his teaching, they said, nah, nah, not this guy. Surely not this guy, the carpenter's son. Other people we see have been following him and becoming his disciples. The religious leaders we have seen are hostile and threatened and are seeking a way to destroy Jesus. But now we get to see how at least two members of the royal household reacted to Jesus. We begin in verse 1 with Herod. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. This is not the same Herod as the one we saw in in the Christmas narrative. Not the one who sought to kill all the children in order to snuff out Jesus. Not the one who was tricked by the wise men. No, this is one of his sons. And hearing about the miraculous works of Jesus, this Herod is afraid in verse 2. He says to his servants, this guy doing miracles, he must be John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. And then Matthew gives the rest of the story to explain why Herod was afraid that John was back from the dead. Herod feels guilty for having put John to death. He has seen that there was something special about John and his ministry. And he fears that this miracle worker from Nazareth is John resurrected. But the fear didn't begin then, did it? No, we we saw in this passage, while John was still in prison, Herod is in fear of the man of God and of the Word of God. Verse 5, Though Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the people. Herod was afraid of how the people would react because the people held that John was a prophet. People fear the kingdom of God. Those in authority fear the kingdom of God and the power that God's kingdom has over His people. The world wants a tame Christian. The world wants a cooperative church. It wants a Christian faith that mirrors and reflects its own values. When the world says this is okay, the church is to give their, their, you know, their, their seal of approval and be like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, the Bible can say that. But the kingdom of God doesn't do that, does it? The kingdom of God calls us to a different set of values and beliefs and priorities. It teaches us that loving our neighbor doesn't always have to mean agreeing with our neighbor or approving of our neighbor. While I was ministering overseas, I met a. a many of you come to me and, and, and want to know about ministry in China. And, and one of the things that I hear is well, there's no churches in China, right? aside from the underground church. Well, actually there are. There's actually a state-approved, government-funded Christian church in China. It has millions and millions of members. However, that church is required by law to not preach certain doctrines and to not practice certain things that we as Christians know that we are called to practice. Every pastor must be trained and approved by the communist government. However, there are some wonderful godly men who have gone into the ministry within the state church because they believe that if there are people who are seeking to hear God's word, where else are they going to go? Let us find a way to covertly get godly men in ministry in these churches. And I met one of those pastors and was speaking to him about his ministry and and what it's like for him ministering uh, as a true believer, but having to abide by all these restrictions. And yet, seeking to evangelize and and teach the true faith uh, as carefully as he can. And he said, you know, know, there's there's things that you know I'm not allowed to preach. You know I can't preach on the resurrection. You know I can't preach on creation. You know I can't preach on the second coming. Which makes me wonder, like, what version of Christianity is this? He said, but there's another verse I'm not allowed to preach on. Because it's one of the most dangerous verses in all of the Bible, according to the communist government. And it's Philippians 3.20. I didn't expect that verse. Philippians 3.20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, Brother, when that verse is rightly understood, it is dangerous. Dangerous to any power, to any kingdom, to any ruler, because if your citizenship is in heaven, in God's kingdom, then your loyalty is there. And no one else can claim your loyalty and obedience above your loyalty to God. And if you are awaiting a Savior from God, then you're not looking to the government. You're not looking to social institutions. You're not looking to any earthly power for your salvation. And they lose their power over you. If they cannot offer you what you truly need, then they have no power over you. And you will not fear what they can do to you. And so Herod arrests John, seeking to keep him quiet because John is a citizen of the heavenly kingdom. And those who hear his words and believe them and follow them are looking to and awaiting a Savior from God and trusting in God and not in the kingdoms of Herod. Herod sees the power that John's word has. He fears the power of the kingdom of God. He can try to restrain and restrict the word of god but he knows that it is more powerful in their hearts than anything he can do against it brothers and sisters the powers of this earth and i don't just mean governments i do mean governments yes but also any power that seeks your loyalty any power that seeks your obedience that seeks your money any power in culture in entertainment political parties on both sides, and yes, government and leaders, they fear losing your loyalty because then they lose their power over you. So the Word of God is a threat to the kingdoms of this earth and they fear it rightly. They will try to put a fence around the Word of God and keep it from being heard and obeyed in your life because the message of the kingdom is a threat. It's a threat to every other power. For our part, we must remain loyal to our true king, recognizing that worldly powers want your loyalty. They want you to adapt. They want you to look like them, to think like them, to talk like them. And Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 2, to the believers, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I love that phrase, don't be conformed to this world. That, that word conformed it describes being squeezed into a mold and shaped a certain way. And the image Paul is giving is that the world has a certain mold, a certain way that it wants you to look. A certain uh, le- limit and pattern of behaviors and values that they want you to abide by. And they want to squeeze you into that mold. And, and obedience to God, loyalty to the kingdom of God, breaks you out of that mold and fashions you in the image of Christ. And anyone who wants power over you would fear that. The other reaction we see from earthly powers is that other powers will fight the kingdom of God. Herod's reaction was fear, but we see another reaction. In the story that Matthew gives us, Herod is one of the characters, but he actually comes off a little bit wishy-washy. Doesn't he? He doesn't like what John says, but he's too afraid of the people to do much about it, so he kind of tries to find this unsuitable middle ground where John's in prison, just kind of lingering there, still still ongoing preaching against what Herod is doing. But Herod's not doing anything because he's afraid. But there's another character. I'll probably keep saying Herodias, but it's Herodias is how I think it's pronounced. The story of the marriage between Herod and Herodias is a soap opera unto itself that we don't need to get into the details of. The short version is that this Herod, Herod the Tetrarch, had persuaded Herodias, who was married to Herod's brother Philip, persuaded her to divorce her husband, and he at the same time divorced his wife so that they could get married to one another. And in doing so, they broke God's laws regarding marriage, not only by divorcing their spouses without any reason, other than the fact that they were kind of, tired of the marriage and liked someone else, but also because of the closeness of their relationship. God's law did not permit that level of close relationship to be married. And John spoke out about that. John had a tendency to point that out. We see several times in Scripture, and Matthew mentions it here in verse 4. John had been saying, and that that had been saying means ongoing. He was still saying, even in prison, it's not law for you to have her as your wife. Herod, you're doing the wrong thing. You're sinning against God. John had not only said this to Herod, he had publicly pointed it out in front of the crowds who heard him preached. Herod's approach, as we see in, in verse 3, Herod's approach was to seize John, bound him, and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Okay, so we, we put the guy in jail, and hope that, that stops our PR problems, our image problem. But for Herodias, that wasn't enough. Worldly powers may fear the kingdom of God and seek to restrain it, but in many cases, that is never enough. Eventually, it becomes clear that the kingdom of God cannot coexist with the kingdoms of man. And so the earthly kingdoms will fight the kingdom of God and seek to destroy it. So Herodias waits because she's not the king. She's limited in what she can do and limited in her power. And so she has to play a waiting game. Till the opportunity arrives on Herod's birthday. Herod is a king of sorts. Matthew's very careful to call him a tetrarch. He's not actually a king. He's a little bit lower than a king. But he felt like a king. His dad was a king. And he has wealth. And he has power. And he invites powerful and wealthy and influential people to celebrate his birthday. And they feast. And they drink. And they have entertainment brought into them. And part of the entertainment was a dance by Salome, Herodias' daughter which would be Herod's stepdaughter. So pleased was Herod with the dance, and perhaps not in the best state of mind, verse 7, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Not a, it's not an unusual promise from an ancient king to say to somebody, whatever you want, give me, ask for whatever you want, I'll give it to you. you. know, In Mark's version, we see that Herod at least put some limits on it, and said, up to half my kingdom. Give me, I'll give you whatever you want. I swear, I promise. In front of all my guests, I promise. He takes an oath. Salome runs back to her mother and tells her what's happened and says, well, I don't know what to ask for. What should I ask for? And that's when Herodias sees her chance. She wants John dead. The convicting, condemning, unrelenting word of God. The messenger of the kingdom must be silenced. And so verse 8. Prompted by her mother, she said, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. It's kind of clever how she says, I want it here on a platter. There's accountability in that. The guests will see that it has been done. There's no way Herod can back out of it. Having taken a promise and sworn an oath in front of his guests, so he does it. And this is just a small example, just a microcosm of the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world. It should never be the expectation of the people of God that we will live in happy harmony with the world. Yes, we will love our neighbors. Yes, we will seek the peace of the land that God has called us to dwell in. But we will hold no illusions about living in harmony. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 14-16. What partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's an idol. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the, living, of, of the living God. Though we seek to live in peace and do whatever we can to be at peace with all people and to give no offense and to love them and serve them and be kind to all, yet we expect to be fought And resisted and opposed. Because our loyalty is to God and to His Word. And that's a loyalty that the world does not share. And sooner rather than later, the borders of those two kingdoms will bump up against each other and there will be conflict. If we would be content to just hold our tongue and just play nice and to mind our own business, to live and let live, and to follow the ways of the world, we would have no trouble. But if we would be faithful to our King? The One who was rejected by men and opposed by them. The One who was ultimately put to death Himself by the powers of this world. If we would follow that King, then we should expect that we too will be opposed. He told His disciples, if the world hates you, remember it hated me first. But Christians, the fact that we are opposed and can expect to be opposed, violently and unjustly opposed, does not excuse unchristlike like behavior on our parts. Did you ever see the Untouchables? The movie The Untouchables, and there's a famous scene where Sean Connery's trying to give advice. Uh, Sean Connery plays a, a police officer, and he's, he's speaking to Elliot Ness and how to fight. Uh, who's the Who's the villain? Um, Al Capone. There we go. Thank you. I wanted to say Scarface. I knew it wasn't Scarface. I was just testing to see who'd watch that movie. Uh, how do you fight Al Capone? And Sean Connery's character says, if he pulls a knife, you pull a gun. He puts one of yours in the hospital, you put one of his in the morgue. That's how you fight a guy like that. Christian, that's not how we fight. We don't try to escalate. When we are treated unjustly, we do not respond with injustice. When we are spoken to harshly, we do not take that as an opportunity to, to speak even more harshly. Instead, we follow the example of Christ when the world fights. 1 Peter chapter 2. 21, for to this you've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. The world will fight the kingdom of God, but brothers and sisters, we will trust we will be faithful and trust. Because of the third thing that we see in these verses. The earthly powers will fear the kingdom of God and the power it has over us. They will fight the kingdom and seek to restrict it. But in the end, other powers will fail. How do we see that here? It doesn't actually end looking like a victory for God's servants, does it? Verse 12, John's disciples came and took the body and buried it, and then they went and told Jesus. Well, that sure doesn't look like failure for Herod and his kingdom. That looks like failure for John and his ministry. But it only looks like failure for the kingdom of God if our view of the kingdom boils down to a single person or a single event. Yes, John was put to death. Shamefully, violently, unjustly killed. But the kingdom of God did not die with him. In fact, go back to the first verse. Why are we even hearing about this? It's because in verse 1, at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. The ministry of the kingdom of God, the proclamation of the word of God, and the growth of the people of God continued. John himself knew his role. He was not supposed to be the center of people's hopes. That role was reserved for another. His role was to play a supporting role in that. In fact, in John's Gospel, we see that at one point, uh, Jesus begins getting more attention, and John's disciples, uh, feeling jealous for John, they come to John and they're like, John, that guy you baptized, people are following him now. They're leaving you to follow him. They're expecting John to be like, Oh, no, 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 no. Get back over here to my ministry. But instead, look what he says in John chapter 3, 29 and 30. John says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase. I must decrease. What John is saying is my role in this whole story of God's kingdom, I'm not the groom and the bride is not mine. Jesus is the groom, the bridegroom. The bride belongs to Him. I'm not going to try to take His bride away from Him. I'm not taking His people away from Him. My job was to point to Him. My job was to to announce His coming, to let people know He was here, to point people towards Him. Do you know what John's disciples kept doing? They kept going and following Jesus, which is exactly what John wanted. He must increase. I must decrease. John knew that the kingdom of God was not about him, but it was about Jesus who had already won the victory. Yes, we should feel sad when another pastor or another author or another Christian leader, some famous Christian figure, uh, dies and we see an end to their ministry. We should be very saddened when they disappoint us and, and do something that disqualifies them from ministry. But our hope and our measure of the advance of the kingdom of God is never in any one church or ministry or person, but is only in Jesus Christ. John's disciples had learned this. I mean, look, even what they did in verse 12 after they buried John, what did they do? They went and told Jesus. Because they had learned, John had told them, that the role of any great woman or man in the kingdom of God is to be the friend of the bridegroom, to point people to the bridegroom, to Jesus. And John had done that. Therefore, John's ministry was a success. Herod didn't win. Herodias didn't conquer John. John had done exactly and all that he was supposed to do. They could kill the man of God. But they cannot kill or stop the kingdom of God they will fail. Why? Why can we be sure that they will fail? Because though John was executed and buried, there was another who was executed and buried, but his story didn't end there. John's story ends with his burial. Jesus' story does not. Right? Jesus' story does not end with a burial. There's chapters and chapters after that. There is one who did not stay buried. It's that simple. In 1 Corinthians 15, we see that then comes the end when He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is what? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. The ministry of Jesus is not complete until every enemy is conquered. And the last enemy He conquers is death itself. Not just His own death, but death itself. In rising from the dead, Jesus showed His power to defeat it. At His return, death will be no more. And all His children in His kingdom will live eternally. But to do that, He had to first defeat death, not just because death is a sad thing. And many, it's interesting, many of the the commentators and authors who, who I found writing about this chapter spent most of the time just writing about the sadness of death. And yes, death is a sad thing, but death is also the consequence of our rebellion. And we need never lose sight of that. God is a great king. And we have not followed His commands. We seek our own way. And those who seek their own way are rebels against a king. And those who fight against a king and rebel against him are under a death sentence. It has been so since the very beginning when the Lord said to Adam and Eve, the day that you eat of that fruit I've told you not to eat of, the day you choose to disobey me, in that day you will surely die. You put yourself under a death sentence. But the king himself, out of love for His rebellious children, steps up to the place of execution, to the cross, and takes our place under the stroke of justice. It is then that He defeats death, so that all who follow Him find themselves not only forgiven, but also citizens of a victorious kingdom. That's what becomes of earthly powers. When faced with the kingdom of God, they fear it because it has power over us. Because it claims our loyalty. And it offers us what they cannot give. They fight against it. Because it works against everything they seek to establish. Every earthly power seeks to build up itself. God's kingdom calls us to glorify Him. And though they fear, and though they fight, earthly powers will fail. Because as we will sing in a moment, His kingdom is forever. People of God, let us pray with thankful hearts that despite what we see in the world today, despite what God's people have for generations and centuries and millennia seen in the world, what we see today is nothing new. God's people have always seen that the powers of the world, incensed by, furious by, frustrated by the kingdom of God and its power over us, they fear it, they fight it, but always we are assured they will fail. Though they've seemed to succeed for a time, and though John is sent to the executioner's axe, in the end, the kingdoms of earth will fail, and only his kingdom is forever. So let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the promise that whatever the powers of this earth, and whatever the powers of Satan and all his kingdom, seek to do through the powers of this earth to oppose and fight and suppress and defeat the kingdom of God. It is not just a losing battle. It is a battle that has already been lost. On the cross, you have secured the victory. And now we live out that good news by giving our loyalty to you, our obedience to you, fearing not what anyone can do to us. and Looking forward with great joy and great hope the victory of Your kingdom, the full and final victory that is yet to come. We thank You in the name of our Savior and great King, Jesus Himself. Amen.